Today's passage is from John chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. John chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. This is the reading of God's holy and errant word. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom he loved is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus has spoken of his death, but they had thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Well, good morning. It's good to see you all this morning as we gather to worship our God. Uh, Before we go into the sermon this morning, just want to welcome uh, a guest who's joining us. Uh, Fred, no. Fred, I'm sorry, I didn't get a chance to... Uh, there he is on my left, uh, and his brother Joe was here as well, uh, and you were also here at 9 a.m.? Okay, and so he's here for both. Thank you both for joining us. Let's all welcome them together. All right, well, we are here in uh, John 11, and as we look at the Gospel of John, it, it is a gospel that many scholars believe and agree that it is, it's a a gospel that was written later in life by a very aged apostle. And just by the language, you can tell that it's a different gospel compared to the other three gospels of Matthew, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It seems like the gospel of John primarily had non-believers in mind because in multiple points of the gospel, you see the phrase, may believe. The disciples said it during the accounts. Jesus himself said uh, words that will hopefully bring people to believe. And the writer of gospel has written it many times too. Uh, In fact, John talks about why he wrote this account of the gospel, why this was necessary. At the end of the book, he writes, The accounts of Jesus and his signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, this isn't to say even if the Gospel of John was written primarily for non-believers in mind, it doesn't mean we believers won't benefit. We will surely benefit from this Gospel. But you can see why many Gospel tracts have a lot of John in there. And in the context of our passage this morning, 
Jesus had preached and he had spoken to many people about he, how he is the good shepherd to his people and that he will reach to save people and no one will be able to snatch them out of his hands. The very work that he had done and the very work, the signs and the miracles that he had performed in the past were, are actually the work of the Father making himself equal to God. As a result, the Jews picked up their stones for the second time in this narrative to stone him. But he was able to slip away from them and travel across uh, Jordan about a day's journey. And that's where we find Jesus and his disciples in our passage. So join with me in prayer, uh, praying for the Lord to bless our message this morning. Father, we thank you that you have called us and gathered us here, that we may hear your word. And I pray that your spirit would minister to us, that we would be challenged by the words that we hear and encouraged knowing that you are our God strengthening us and giving us the grace to live for the sake of your glory. And we pray, Father, as we hear this word, that we would receive eyes of faith to behold the very glory of God who loves us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Imagine with me, if you will. It's a cold and rainy day. And the, the coldness we may not have to imagine so much. But on the cold and rainy day, you decide to meet with a friend over a hot bowl of pho. As you sit down with your friend, as the orders have come in, you, you put in your basil leaves, you mix in with your mung beans, you, you spice it up with a slice or two of jalapeno peppers, you put in some saute sauce, squirt some uh, plum sauce as well as sriracha, and then you squeeze in a piece of lime, you mix it all together, take that soup bowl, and you take that first slurp. Glorious. Take another scenario. You're away from home for about three to four days. You've been sleeping in a cabin on top of a floor mat that they call a mattress. And if you've slept on one of these things, you know any sort of sound is loud as the roaring thunder because of those plastic coverings that they put on. So anytime you shift to the right, to the left, it wakes you up and, and the sound can be uh, very disturbing. You wake up every morning with a sore back and stiff neck. You've woken up multiple times throughout the night because the sleeping bag that you're using gets extremely hot when you're inside it, and you get really cold when you're outside of it. Then you finally come home. You're able to take a shower. You can sleep on your own bed with your own comforters in a comfortable atmosphere. And then when we experience that, we say, this is glorious. Glory is a word that, that's, that's often very hard to define, but, but we use it all the time. Uh, I, I wasn't there at the football tournament last weekend, but I heard that Pastor Xiong had some pretty glorious receptions. <laughs> and though it's hard for us to define what glory is, we use it and we can, in a sense, identify it when it's present. We can identify something to be glorious. As Christians, glory is an important word. We teach our children that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Following the Reformed tradition of the church, we declare that we do all things for the glory of God, soli deo gloria, glory to God alone. When we think about glory, we have many things in mind concerning God. We think about God's majesty. We think about God's beauty. We think about his fame and renown, his reputation. We think about God's awesome power. We think about his otherness, which is usually what we mean when we say that he is holy, that there is no one like him, that there is no being like him. 
John Piper defined glory of God as the manifest beauty of God's holiness, the way God puts his holiness on display for people to apprehend. Glory of God is trying to describe the greatness of God in the ways that God has revealed himself to us with words that he has given to us while still understanding that those very words are still so limited in describing and understanding who he is. And I think for these reasons, glory is a a very hard word to define, especially in relation to God. But in our passage this morning, we do gain a sense of glory and why it is so important for you and I to live for the sake of God's glory, to give God the glory, and why it is of utmost importance to our Lord Jesus Christ. Upon hearing that his friend whom he loves is gravely ill, Jesus tells his disciples, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. What Jesus is about to do after Lazarus has fallen ill and the the miraculous work that he's about to do, he's going to reveal God and for the Son of God to be revealed as one who deserves honor, the majesty, the praise, as the Father, so that those who witness the sign can believe that Jesus truly is that Christ, and that by believing in him, one could have life in his name. And this is what John loves to do throughout the 21 chapters in this gospel account, to show that Jesus has always been fully divine, even while he is fully human, having always had the same glory of God. Therefore, what you and I need, dear friends, In this troubling world and whatever we may go through, what you and I need is sight to behold God's glory. To behold his glory and praise like the way that many of the psalmists have done throughout the Bible. Uh, One psalmist says, who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Another psalmist has, has said, oh Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. In other points of the Bible, it says, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. We need to behold the glory of God so that we can give praise to God. And and one day, all of us, we will see the glory of God with our very eyes. The glory of God will not be by faith one day, but it will be by sight with our resurrected eyes. And when we are able to behold his glory, how can we want anything else? When we can see the display of God's beauty and majesty, his awesome greatness and power, how can we want anything else? What want could we express when we are beholding his glory? And yet even now, even now we can and we need to fix our eyes upon the glory of our Lord. Just as the psalmists have done in their present circumstances in life, we ourselves can also still today behold the glory of God and praise him forevermore. So I'll share some aspects of God's glory as well as the effect that that his glory has in our lives with the following points. Number one, we'll see glory in love. Number two, we'll see glory over fear. And number three, we'll see glory in death. Glory in love, glory over fear, and glory in death. Now, after slipping through the grips of religious leaders who wanted to stone him, he gets a report that a friend of his has fallen ill. Mary and her sister Martha, who are no strangers to Jesus, sent him a message saying, 
Lord, he whom you love is ill. This family is no stranger to Jesus. He, he deeply cared for, for this family. He said, we see in verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And we are even told that it is Mary, one of the siblings, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, who later on in the story takes a pound of expensive ointment, anoints Jesus' feet, and takes her hair to wipe them. So what did he do when he heard that Lazarus, this friend whom he loves, fell ill? Did he rush quickly to the other side of the Jordan so that he can touch and heal the sick man? Or did he, from where he has spoken, say, Lazarus, be healed, and allow Lazarus to be healed in an instant? Because we know he's, he, he has the ability to do both. Strangely, no, the text tells us in verse 5 and 6, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. It is because Jesus loved them. When he heard that Lazarus was gravely ill, he decided to stay two days longer, letting Lazarus die long enough so that one cannot deny he actually died. Because he loved this family, because he loved this friend who is ill, he let him die long enough to make sure everyone knew he's really dead. So that when the miraculous work is done, people will see that this is a sure resurrection and not a mere resuscitation. But I wonder why? When you hear the phrase of how he loved this family and that his friend is ill, why did he stay two days longer and let him die? Why not heal Lazarus and spare this family of a momentary but deep and agonizing sorrow? As mentioned earlier, Jesus said that this illness will not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. And he's telling this family whom he loves that he's about to do something that will reveal God to them, reveal his power. See, Jesus isn't cold and calculating. He isn't merely thinking, what are the ways that I can get glory regardless of the expense of others? Everything that we see he does, he does out of love. So as he does this work for the glory of God, it would also be good for Lazarus, his sisters, and for many who are witnessing this resurrection account. It was because Lazarus truly died that people who witness the sign can be deeply strengthened by Christ and firmly believe that he is truly the resurrection and the life when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, Perhaps you've had days and moments in life when you really wanted to say to God, Lord, if you had been here, whatever you may have gone through in, in that deep agony and sorrow, perhaps in your heart or mouth, or you may have actually said, Lord, if you were here, just like Martha and Mary did when Lazarus died. And perhaps you have wondered why God would allow you to go through moments of sorrow, great sorrows even, when he could have easily taken them away or prevented them from happening in the first place. But if Jesus does everything for the glory of God, then somehow, in the end, it's going to be for our good. And because everything that he does for the glory of God will be for our good as well, as our shepherd, he will at times take us through the valleys of shadow of death, 
He, was, he will lead us through difficult moments and suffering without giving us answers to what's going to happen next or why it's happening in the first place. But at the end, we end up seeing more of God and all that he is. We come to realize that our present circumstance has been for the glory of God. I heard a short testimony of a man who, was, who has been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, MS. It's a nerve-ending disease uh, um, or nerve-damaging disease eating away the outer layer of your nerves and causing people to have all sort of different symptoms. There is no cure, and, and many of the symptoms that people experience are vision loss, pain, fatigue, impaired coordination, just to name a few. And because this man was struck with multiple sclerosis as he was sitting on the hospital bed, he started, it, this disease caused him to think more about God. Providentially, it led to him reading a booklet called God is Holy by R.C. Sproul. And in this booklet, it's in the Bible, but you know, he clearly wasn't reading the Bible. But in this booklet, he, he saw how the prophet Isaiah was confessing, Woe is me. I have been sinning against God with my lips and my heart. And upon reading these words, he realized on that hospital bed that he himself has also been sinning against God with his lips and his heart. This man had heard the gospel many times before in his past, but it wasn't until this moment at the age of 32 he realized why he needed to be saved. And so after all the suffering and the difficulty of dealing with MS, he came to this conclusion. I would rather have MS and heard the gospel than not have MS and have continued in my old ways. I believe God used it for my good. Here's a man who understood that when God does things for his glory, it's always with love for his people. In pain and agony, this man saw the majesty, the beauty, the holiness, the goodness, and the power of God, just as Martha, Mary, and all those who are around will get to see when Jesus resurrects Lazarus from the dead. Here's an aspect of the glory of God. It is in love that he will lead us through these difficult trials so that we can ultimately see his grand power and majesty of reasons of why we want to praise him and why there is truly no one like him. It is in love. But what are the effects? What happens when we behold the glory of God? The glory of God as we behold triumphs over our fears, which brings us to the second point. When Jesus realized that the time of performing the sign had come, he told his disciples, let us go to Judea again. So they would have to cross the Jordan once again. But remember why they were in this position, in this situation in the first place. He had declared to the people that he is the Christ. He made himself, uh, he, he made himself equal with God by saying that he and the Father are one. And people wanted to stone him. They wanted to kill him for that. The disciples didn't forget it. They said, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you're going there again? You can clearly sense fear in these disciples. They wanted to kill you. And by association, they probably wanted to kill us too. And you're going there again? Even when Jesus told them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken them, they replied, 
Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't understand what Jesus was going to do, but you can sense a level of frustration and confusion. Lord, if he's sleeping, he's going to wake up. That's just what people do. We don't have to be there to wake him up. And you can almost hear what they mean by these words. What do you mean, let us go to Judea? Why do I have to be there? Why do you have to take me to a place of danger? Why do you have to put me in the crossfire when they want to stone you? So why was Jesus so determined to go to Judea despite the animosity toward him there? Because he came to do the work that will glorify God. He came to do the work that he has been called to do. Despite the animosity, Jesus does not shy away from the task that he has come to fulfill. He has come to work so that God may be revealed along with the plan of redemption through the Son for the glory of God. Back in those days, as it is common now, people worked during the day when it is light outside. And when it got dark, people would stay home so that they won't stumble on the road. And Jesus spoke of these words, right? Twelve hours, there's daylight, people work in the day, in the night, they, they stay home or else they will stumble on the road. And Jesus is basically telling them, I'm here to do God's work. And as I'm doing God's work, I will not stumble, nor will this labor fail. The disciples understood that as long as Jesus is walking with them, they're, they're going to be okay, even if they venture into areas of hostility. As long as they have this Jesus, their Lord, walking with them, they're going to be okay. He is the light of life, and as long as he is present and with them, even if they venture into place of hostility, it's going to be okay. This is why when Jesus was crucified, they weren't out there ministering to people. They hid themselves in a room and locked the door for the fear of the Jews. It was a period of darkness and not of light. But it is because Jesus rose again with the very promise that he would be present by his spirit that they boldly went out into the world proclaiming the good news. These men, through Christ and his resurrection, have seen the glory of God and as a result were able to continually overcome their fears. Now, if you've been with us through the series of Acts, you, you know that these were not fearless men, even though Jesus resurrected. There were still men filled with great fear of the people and the persecution. But they always had a reason to not be afraid. There were fearful individuals, but there was always a reason to not be afraid. So they would remind one another, asking the church to pray, because there was always a reason to not be afraid, because the light of the world was always present with them. The knowledge of our lives being for the glory of God. Knowing that everything that we do and our lives as a whole is for God's glory causes us to be daring and bold. If you truly believe that Jesus is walking with us, then we can also believe that our labors will not fail. That all the things that we do for the sake of God and his glory will not be in vain. Sure, the things that we do may not come out the way that we had hoped, may not have the outcome that we, had, that we had wished, but in the end, it will not be in vain, even though the world may look at it and say, man, you failed. You are defeated. 
that even all the labor that we put in and all the labor that we do for the sake of God's glory, it will not be a failure, it will not be in vain, even if the world deems it so. Because that was the cross. The world saw the cross as Jesus hung on the cross. They saw that as their victory and his defeat. You spent all those years gathering your disciples. You've done all these miraculous signs, and now look at you, dead, defeated. But we know that his defeat yielded to victory and that his humiliation led to his exaltation. When the world said Jesus is defeated, he rose again to victory. And so all of our labor for the glory of God will truly reveal the majesty, the beauty, the holiness, and the goodness of our God. But friends, ask yourselves whether the labor that you are putting in, whether it be a labor of love in the relationships that you have or whether it be the labor in your everyday jobs, whether the labor that you are putting in is for the glory of God. Would you consider and ask these questions among yourselves and, and, and see whether it, what you're doing is for God's glory? How is God more revealed in what you're doing or where you're working? How are people coming to see God's holiness and his majesty and, your, and, and his beauty in your conversations, in your hosting, in your serving, and even in your eating and drinking? And this doesn't mean that we put Bible passages in all of our end-of-the-year reports or make every conversation into a gospel presentation. But it does mean that if you are in a company and people are taking shortcuts and cheating, that you do not participate. That you might even be so bold to quit that job and take a less lucrative job and keep your integrity intact. It means that when people are moved to the extreme by the trends of our society or the emotional baggage of what's been going on, because of the way information flows with our medium, that you learn to take things slow, you look for the truth, you speak up, and you defend it. It means you mourn at the loss of life, and you mourn for people who are in mourning. And there's so many other ways where the labor that we do can be for the glory of God, that, that we're showing that this is for the glory of God. But it also means that you have to make the gospel explicitly known. Because people don't need to know how good you can be. They need to know that there is a good God who saves people. Now, many of us at the, at the thought or the, or the sound of evangelism, witnessing or sharing the gospel with others can fill us with fear. But the more I think about this in my own life and the more I examine in, in, in the lives of others, I don't think fear may be our greatest obstacle. The reason why we do not explicitly share the good news is not because we're afraid. Over the years, social media has taught me that we are all good evangelists. Every single one of us, we are good at sharing and proclaiming good news. When a child is born, we post more pictures of him or her than people seem to care. When my son Nolan was born, I have to make two Facebook albums. That's over 120 pictures in an album. Telling the world that I have a son and he is born and growing and cute and handsome like his father. We post announcements about our engagements and our love and I know what many of you have eaten for Thanksgiving because you posted them and who you ate it with. And I'm sure when you posted these things, you cared little about who's going to like or who's going to comment. You didn't really care too much about how many likes your, your post was going to get, although being social media, I imagine some people craved for them. 
But when people post these things on social media, they just wanted to share good news. When the news is good enough, we often want to share it. When the news is good enough, we want to share it with people. So friends, fear may not be your greatest obstacle in sharing the gospel. The greatest obstacle may be whether you truly believe that the gospel is good enough to share. Fear may not be your obstacle, but it is whether you truly believe that the gospel is good enough to share. I hope you'll consider that and ponder it upon yourselves, of whether the gospel that you proclaim is truly good enough to you and good enough for others to hear. And I hope this last point can convince you that the gospel is truly good enough to share as God does all things for his glory in love and as we gaze upon his glory, it triumphs, over, it triumphs over our fears, and the glory of God has been manifested, revealed in death. Now, death is a terrible thing. It is not a friend of ours. It will and has never been a friend of ours. It is a last enemy that is to be destroyed. And we even see through this narrative of Jesus raising Lazarus just how devastating and terrible this was. Even though Jesus knew what he was going to do when he saw the mourners and those people whom he loved weeping for Lazarus, we see that Christ himself couldn't even hold back his own tears, and he wept. But he was about to do something glorious for people to see. You'll notice that when you read through John, he doesn't refer to Jesus' miraculous works as miracles. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they often say miracles of Jesus, but John specifically uses the word sign to tell you what he's about to do here is merely pointing forward to what he's about to do later. Raising Lazarus from the dead is the last sign before his crucifixion, showing what he was going to do with his own death. The religious leaders plotted to kill him because they were afraid that many were going to leave and follow him since he was able to bring a dead person back to life. But they didn't know that the death of Christ will lead to the supreme moment of glorification for the Father and the Son. That it's going to be a great display of God's goodness, mercy, justice, majesty, beauty, and his holiness. In their plan to put Jesus to death, they were merely playing the part in God's plan that he had since the beginning for his glory. And through Jesus' death and resurrection, many more will come and believe in him. So in a place of death, Jesus reveals himself to be the glorious son of God in order that people can see this is a man who has power even over death. He tells his disciples in verse 15, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. I am glad that I wasn't there when Lazarus is sick because people were going to urge me and press me to heal him. But for your sake, I'm glad I was absent and that he could remain dead so that when you see what I'm about to do, you can really believe in who I am. And who is it that we profess, dear brothers and sisters? Who is it that we believe? We believe in the one who has power even over death and one who can give life even to the dead. This is more evident not in Jesus' ability to raise other people, but in the ability to raise himself from the dead. He tells his disciples, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. 
Jesus, we know on Good Friday, willingly marched to the cross. No one could have forced him to the cross. People have tried to arrest him. People have tried to stone him many times in the past, but it was not his hour. And when the time had come, he allowed himself to be beaten, mocked, spat at, torn, crucified, and killed, only to prove himself and prove to others in the end that he's the one who has authority over life and death, and that he's the one who is glorified by God the Father and by millions of people who profess his name today. It is those who truly live for the glory of God who, are willing, who will be willing to march to the cross. It is those who have the glory of God in their mind, of desiring to reveal God's reputation, his fame, renown, his majesty, beauty, holiness. It is those who will be willing to march to the cross because they know that life doesn't end on the cross. It is, for, it is those who truly live for the glory of God that will labor and do most in this world. As C.S. Lewis said in the book, Mere Christianity, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot in the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven, and you'll get the earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you'll get neither. And during Jesus' ministry on earth, uh, as you read the stories of the relationships that he has with his disciples, you find that his disciples have said many things uh, without really even realizing why they said what they said. We see the uh, Apostle Thomas doing that here. When Jesus told them, I'm going to go and raise Lazarus, Thomas tells his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. He knew that traveling with Jesus back to the other side of Jordan could lead to death. They wanted to kill him, and by association, they knew that they could also die. Whatever may have caused him to say these words, these words would be the words of all would-be disciples of Jesus. That if you are a follower of Jesus today, you would also say, I will walk with Jesus. Let us also go that we may die with him. That I will die with Christ. This mindset is only possible when you have the glory of God in mind. When you have the mind of God's majesty and his beauty, when you have the mind of God's holiness and mercy and justice and grace and love, when you have the eyes of faith to behold the glory of God, that you too will say, I will walk with Jesus, I will die with him. When all things are done to the glory of God, the amazing thing is lost people get saved and saved people get strengthened. It is not the safest path in life to follow Jesus because we know that as we follow Jesus, it leads to a cross. But friends, it is the only life that leads to eternal life. It is the only life that leads, though in death, will rise in resurrection to glory. So brothers and sisters, I plead to you this morning, live for God's glory, knowing that as God does all things, he does it in love. 
as his glory is revealed to us, and as we have faith to behold it, it triumphs over our fears. And even in the great loss of death, the glory of God will not fade away. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that this morning, by your grace and by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that we have received eyes of faith to behold the glory of God, to see your majesty, your beauty, your power, and your grace. And amazing even to think that there's still so much more that we can see in your glory, in your fame and honor. But I pray that you would keep our eyes fixed upon you, O Lord, so that in times of trouble, in difficulty, when fears arise, and when death is present, that we can still hope in the Lord and rejoice in God always, not for ourselves only, but for all those who hear the good news of Jesus proclaimed through our lips. So be gracious to us, Lord, and help us to sing songs of praise to your holy name, for you are good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand, let's rise together and close our time with the song of praise.